No, I, I ask about I ask about uh, uh, about your week a little bit because because uh, I wonder if if at this at any point this week did you find yourself where I've been before, which is um, and, I, and I almost brought this in just to to help describe it as a prop, but I, but I I don't need to bring in the refrigerator for you to know what I'm talking about. Have you ever gotten up off the couch and walked into the kitchen? And found yourself, right, staring, asking the question, why am I here? Have, 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 you ever, have you ever gone from one room to another only to find yourself asking, why am I in this room right now? Have, have, you, have, you, ever, have you ever walked into the grocery store knowing you need something but not remembering what it is you need? Have, have, you ever, have you ever pulled into the shopping center parking lot, right, and turned off the car and said, I know I need two things. Now, what's the first thing? Right? Here's good news. The good news is that it's not age that causes these particular memory lapses. And I'm, I'm serious. I'm serious. It's not age. Actually, brain science has shown that it's something called the doorway effect. And you're thinking, he's making this up. I'm not making this up. Scientists from the University of Notre Dame who study the brain have determined, and they haven't figured it all out because we haven't gotten our brains all figured out. They're more complex than that. But one of the things they have figured out is that there is some way that the brain associates something in this room, right? Something in this room that... that is tied to this room and when we leave this room and go to another room and literally step through the doorway or or even just cross into the threshold when you change from one room to another you find yourself having forgotten what it is you remembered in there are you with me in 2011 a couple of researchers from notre dame determined that the doorway effect is real and the principle is simple is that there are some things that our brain remembers associated with where we are. And that when you change locations, you've also then changed your ability to remember why you're there. And so, it's not that you're getting older, and all the young people in the room are like, yeah, yeah, you are getting older. Okay, no, you actually are getting older, but that's not what's causing you to stand in front of the refrigerator door until it starts to make noise at you and say, close the door and you're like, I I don't remember why I got here. It's true. Now here's the thing. Christmas is coming. And I don't want any of us to open up the door of Christmas and step through and forget why we're here. You see, Christmas morning, Christmas morning is God keeping his promise. And I don't want any of us to forget what the promise was. Christmas morning is God delivering on on salvation. And I don't want any of us to forget what it is we needed to be saved from. Christmas is coming. and, And that's the moment that God delivers us from our sins. And I don't want any of us to forget what it is we need to be delivered from. 
I mean, it would be, it would be to use the analogy, it would be to, 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 to have a cut or a wound that requires a bandage and to someone go and get it for you and to hand it to you, only then to forget what it is that's bleeding and to lay the bandage aside. I mean, this is the essence of Christmas, is salvation. But what happens if we forget it? What happens if on Christmas morning we open up the doors and we're right on the cusp of of goodness and joy and peace and the angels and the babies and all of it, only to then go, I don't remember why I'm here. And it happens, doesn't it? The church offers us four Sundays to get ready. Four Sundays to, to, to not forget what Christmas means when it get he, gets here. Because the truth is, I'm the guy, and maybe you are too, that gets up off the couch and finds myself one room away, not exactly sure why I'm here. I'm the guy who will get to Christmas Day, and if I don't watch out, it'll just be another day. I mean, a day with presents, but just another day. So one of the ways the church prepares us to get ready for this is that we listen to the prophets. And particularly, we listen to the prophet Isaiah. And so with the question before us, how do we keep hold of what Christmas is about? I invite you to turn in the Bible. Would we, would we read the Bible together? Let's, uh, let's turn to the prophet Isaiah. It's just a couple of chapters to the right of the middle of your Bible. Uh, probably the most significant prophet, certainly the most significant prophet of this, uh, of this 8th century, 800, 750 years before the coming of Jesus. There's this prophet who has a message, and he's got a message for both the southern kingdom after the division from from David, Solomon, and on down with the kings, for the southern kingdom, and that's what's referenced when it says Judah and Jerusalem, but also for all of the kingdom, which is some of the references when it talks about all of Israel and all of the sons of Jacob. So this is a message of Isaiah to the people of God, and this is how it goes. It begins, the vision about Judah and Jerusalem that Isaiah, Amoz's son, saw in the days of Judah's king, Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. So this is, this is actually like a narrator giving us the first verse, simply telling us this is a, what's about to happen. And in verse 2, it begins right off the bat. And this is Isaiah speaking on behalf of God. And he says, Hear you heavens and listen earth, for the Lord has spoken. I reared children, I raised them, and they turned against me. An ox knows its owner, and a donkey, which is actually a cleaned up word, and a donkey its master's feeding trough. But Israel, which is this word for the people of God, but Israel doesn't know. My people don't behave intelligently. Now, now let's be clear. We're two verses in to the prophetic word of Isaiah to the people of God. Two verses in, and he has said, my people rebel and forget me. In fact, you know the ox and the mm -mm word? You know them? 
even they are more obedient and faithful to their masters and their idiots than you are to your God. I mean, we're two verses in and the gloves are off. And it only gets worse. Doom, sinful nation, people weighed down with crimes, evil-doing offspring, corrupt children. They have abandoned the Lord, despised the Holy One of Israel. They have turned their backs on God. Why do you invite further beatings? Why continue to rebel? Everyone's head throbs and everyone's heart fails. From head to toe, none are well. Only bruises, cuts, raw wounds, not treated, not bandaged, not soothed with oil. The image here, this metaphor, and, and, the, and the prophetic word is just one metaphor after another, after another, after another. Sometimes they come crashing double in on each other like waves. This metaphor here is that of a person who has gotten so wounded and we're not sure right now, if it's wounded by someone else, if someone else is actually inflicting the damage to us, or if in fact, what, it's actually maybe self-inflicted. But either way, the metaphor says that the people of God are literally so bruised and beaten and just damaged, and no one's caring for the body. Your country is deserted. Your cities burned with fire. Your land? Well, strangers are devouring it in plain sight. It's a wasteland as when foreigners raid. Daughter Zion is left. And so this is the word for the people of God. Like, like a small shelter in a vineyard, like a hut in a cucumber field. What once was massive, what, what, once, what, what once was just, just all of splendor, now has been reduced to, to like a little ramshackle house in a field. Like a city besieged. If the Lord of heavenly forces had not spared a few of us, we would be like Sodom. We would resemble Gomorrah. These are two cities from early in the history of God's people that were completely wiped out. I mean, this, this uh, hang on, just for a second. This is really bad. I mean, this is, this is not good news. Everybody agree? This is as bad as it can get. I mean, he starts off by saying, you guys are worse than an ox and a... And then he goes on and makes it worse. And so, and so it begs the question, what are the people doing that's so wrong? What are the people that has, what, what are the people doing that, that has God so enraged and, and just furious with them? And this is where it begins to turn. It begins to explain what's going on. And the explanation is, and it's going to seem confusing at first, so hang with me, but the explanation first is, your religious practices are terrible. Which is peculiar because it says here, God, through Isaiah, is saying, See, you keep, doing, you keep doing all of your religious practices. And what's peculiar about that is that what they're doing is exactly what God commanded them to do. So there must be something more to it. But this is how it goes. Verse 10. Hear the Lord's word, you leaders of Sodom. Listen to our God's teaching, people of Gomorrah. What should I think about all your sacrifices? The ones that I'm aware of. I ask you to make, says the Lord. I'm fed up with entirely burned offerings of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. I don't want the blood of bulls, lambs, and goats. 
when you come to appear before me, who asked this from you? this trampling of my temple's courts. Stop bringing worthless offerings. Your incense, it repulses me. New moon, Sabbath, and the calling of an assembly, this regular gathering of worship, I'm done with it, he says. And then here is when we begin begin to see the explanation why. The very next line says, I can't stand wickedness. God is saying... It's not okay for you to show up cleaned up on Sunday in this place and then the rest of the week out there to be a terrible person. It's it's not okay for you to be all religious for an hour or two and for out there to be an absolute heathen. That's not okay. I'm, I'm, I'm fed up to hear with you practicing it one morning of the week. This is what he's saying. I hate your new moons and your festivals. They've become a burden that I'm tired of bearing. When you extend your hands, I'll hide my eyes from you. Even when you pray for a long time, God says, I won't listen. Because your hands are stained with blood. So, Wash, be clean, remove your ugly deeds from my sight, put an end to such evil, learn to do good, seek justice, help the oppressed, defend the orphan, plead for the widow. This, this last little couplet, couple of lines in a row here, this is a theme of the Old Testament. That justice is defined not just, not just in right and wrong, though that's a big deal. Justice is more than just morality and ethics. Justice is this extra effort that's made to the people who have no one else making an effort for them. And so that's why it regularly re- refers to the foreigner who've got no advocates. It regularly refers to the widows. So, so a woman who's lost her husband has lost more than just the love of her life. They've lost their connection to the economy. They've lost their ability to provide for themselves. They've lost the, the very things that keep them alive and don't even talk about children who've lost parents. So the foreigner and the widow, and the orphan. This is how God defines justice. And he says, you're not doing it. In fact, the language there in verse 17, those last couple of lines are saying that not only are you not interested in helping them, but you're not helping them in the place that they need help the most, which is in this court system. I mean, all of us remember back to our childhood when somebody would say that we did something and we know we didn't do it. You know, we know we didn't do it. But, but, but somebody would make an accusation against us and we would, at least, we would at least have this trust that the teacher or the principal or the parent or whoever it was could look at us and say, well, I, I know they didn't do it. But imagine being an adult in the court system and having someone come and steal from you. And your only, your, 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 your only mechanism for making things right is a system which is actually working against you. 
And God says, this is terrible. I mean, this is what makes me so angry. But there's a way to settle this. This is verse 18. There is a way to settle this. Though your sins are like scarlet, they will be white as snow. That was a perfect song to open up worship with. If they are red as crimson, they will become like wool. See, see, there's option one. If you agree and obey, you will eat the best food of the land. But then there's also option two, which is if you refuse and rebel, you will be devoured by the sword. The Lord has said this. And if you actually skip ahead to, uh, to um, uh, verses 27 and 28, they offer the same two options in a different language. It says, Zion, option one, will be redeemed by justice and those who change their lives by righteousness, which in the New Testament language, this is talking about repentance, right? So option one is repent and turn your life around. Or there's option two, God will shatter rebels and sinners alike. Those who abandon the Lord will be Finished. See, it's, it's not permissible that we might open the doors on Christmas Day and forget how bad it was. And, and it's not permissible, it's not okay that we would open the doors on Christmas Day and forget that we were a part of why it was bad. What does Christmas mean if we're not aware that we need a Savior? What's it been reduced to other than this massive economic boom for Amazon and UPS and FedEx who deliver us from Amazon? I mean, what is, I mean, I'm, I'm serious. What is Christmas? What is Christmas without without the awareness, without the memory kept that we desperately need what's happening that day. Now the church's word, the church's word is that it won't always be this bad. And this is how it ends. It's Isaiah chapter 2. This is what Isaiah, Amos' son, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. In the days to come, the mountain of the Lord's house will be highest of the mountains. It will be lifted above the hills. Peoples will stream to it. Many nations will come and say, well, excuse me, will go and say, come, let's go up to the Lord's mountain, to the house of Jacob's God, so that he may teach us his ways. And we may walk in God's path. It's actually specifically re- referring to this moment in the future in which God Himself will actually be the one teaching there on the Temple Mount. Can you imagine that that happened? Instruction will come from Zion, the Lord's word from Jerusalem. God will judge between the nations. This is, this is now, this is almost like just ripped from the headlines. This is almost like opening up the, the Sunday morning paper. 
Because the, the, the time of Isaiah was a time in which nations were building and building and building up military complexes, where nations were plundering each other for their resources, where nations were, were, were overtaking property just because they wanted it, where nations were literally terrorizing each other. This is what he says. In the midst of all of that, there will be a day that God will judge between the nations and settle disputes of mighty nations. They will then beat their swords into iron plows and their spears into pruning tools. So no more weapons of destruction. They'll be turned into the actual implements of tilling the earth. Nation will not take up sword against nation. They will no longer learn how to make war. Come, house of Jacob, let's walk by the Lord's light. This, this in its fullness, the good news and the bad, this is the word of God for we the people of God. And we say together, thanks be to God. We are four Sundays from Christmas. And, and, and I, I cannot allow myself to go any further away from what it is I know to be true, which is my need of a Savior. I, I can't get up off the couch and find myself in the other room and stand there asking the question, why am I here anymore? We have gotten to this place. It is this bad. And yet, good is coming. And yet, and yet, God keeps his promise. I don't know how many of you were watching yesterday, late in the day, but there was a little moment in the football game between the University of Alabama and Auburn. Anybody watching this game? And, uh, and it, was, it was one of the last games that Vern Lundquist, and so if you're not a football fan, this means almost nothing to you. Um, one of the last games that Vern Lundquist was going to be calling as an announcer for, for, the, for the SEC, and they bring up one of his childhood idols into the booth, and it's Joe Namath. If you've been around for a little while, Joe Namath is this icon, this legend in the world of, of, of college and, and, and professional football. And he's most famous, I wasn't around for it, but he's most famous when, when he was a youngster of calling a win, right, before he even played. Was it the Super Bowl? It was the Super Bowl, right? It was like Super Bowl Zero or something like that. It was like a thousand years ago. Super Bowl Three. I was close. I was really close. He played Johnny Unitas and the Colts. See, Daryl, you should be up here talking. So what, what, what Joe Namath does in Super Bowl three is he calls it, predicts, and says the Jets will win, right? And the crazy thing is, they did. Now here's the thing. For as good as he was then, was he actually 100% certain? Did, did his prediction make it happen? Or was it just his best wishes? That's the difference between us and God. God doesn't say, I predict in the future that I'm going to make everything all right. No, no, no. He says, 
Let me tell you about the day that is surely coming. When everything will be right and I will be with my people. This isn't a prediction. This is the way it's going to be. And Christmas, this is the story of Christmas. So let us not be the people who open the doors on that day and forget why we're here. Let's pray. Lord, you are in fact calling us to commit to commit our lives back to you. You have given us the freedom of choices. You have given us options. Will, will we be those who turn our lives around and come back to you? Or, we, or will we be those who continue to rebel, who continue to disregard you, who've made us? Lord, give us the courage of such commitment. And give us the courage to live as you have called us to live. Live as people of justice, remembering and actively working on behalf of those who have no one else working for them. Lord, this is our prayer for ourselves, that we, that we would hold on to what's brought us here. This hopefulness about the future that you have guaranteed will come. So Lord, stir, stir in our hearts in this very moment. Turn us back to you. Speak to us. Even now. We pray in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.